You're listening to the J.C. and Morgan podcast presented by BP Skinner Clothiers. Folks, if you want to make sure that you look your very best, don't settle for the department store down the street where you're getting something off the rack that is lesser quality and you're dealing with salespeople that sometimes, let's face it, can be a little bit pushy. Get a guy whose sole goal is to make sure you look your very best and he goes out of his way to do so. When I say out of his way, I mean he's coming to you no matter where you're listening to us on this podcast. Brent Skinner a BP Skinner Clothiers will come on out. You book an appointment on the website, bpskinnerclothiers.com. He'll have a consultation with you. He'll bring the samples of some of the most luxurious fabrics from the finest mills in Europe for you to look through as they begin to design your custom garment. After that, it's a few weeks and you are done. It's mailed to you at your door, and you're ready to go. You, like me and so many others that Brent has worked with, will notice the difference in how you look and how you feel, and the price is right. Again, go to the website, bpskinnerclothiers.com. Set up an appointment with Brent Skinner. He'll come to you no matter where you are in the country, and you will begin to look your very best. And now for an inside look at college sports with the men in the know, J.C. and Morgan. Here's Mike Morgan and J.C. Sherbert. Welcome, everybody. It's J.C. and Morgan, the podcast that is one of two each and every week during the college football season. He is J.C. Sherbert at 24-7 Sports. Oh, he's been busy uh, on a couple of things nationally and, yes, locally on uh, the old Big Spur after a disappointing uh, Gamecock loss to Tennessee. Talk about that later on. Uh, I am Mike Morgan of ESPN on the SEC Network, getting ready for another trip to uh, Kentucky this week. I've been to Kentucky quite a bit this year already for football and basketball. But uh, lots of things to talk about this weekend. And, and normally, J.C., we start off with the kind of run the gamut of what the week was, what week eight was. Uh, but today... It's a little more complicated than that because a bombshell has been dropped literally like an hour before we went on and started recording this on this Tuesday. I know some of you listened to it throughout the week. So just to get a little bit of a timestamp here, uh, we, we were recording this on Tuesday. This broke down early Tuesday afternoon. Uh, and I, I felt like this is too big of a story to kind of bury toward the end. So trust me, folks, we're going to get into plenty of games. We have plenty of games uh, storylines, Heisman talk. I finally want to get into actual playoff talk. I don't like doing it in week five and six because I think it's a silly exercise. There's just too many games that have not been played. There's too much of un- too much of the unknown. We know a lot now. Now we can start really, and with Oklahoma losing uh, to an unranked Kansas State team, I, mean, I, I think the field is really starting to narrow down, and, and things are starting to take shape. All that being said, this is what happened today. Moments ago, the NCAA Board of Governors voted unanimously to permit students participating in athletics the opportunity to benefit from the use of their name, image, and likeness. And then just so we are clear on things, they throw in this uh, little tag at the end, quote, in a manner consistent with the collegiate model. Hmm. That means whatever the hell they want it to mean. Um uh, I'll, I'll tell you what I think that really means and what their biggest fear on all this is. But before we get into all that, JC, how are you, sir? 
I'm doing well, Mike. Uh, getting ready for Halloween, and um, you know, watched broke out some of the old horror movies uh, yeah. last weekend. Uh, that uh, one game you mentioned, notwithstanding, in terms of South Carolina, but uh, after football, sort of um, watched a little NFL Sunday, and then kind of had a marathon. And I just want to say this uh, off topic, real quick: as sequels go, Poltergeist Two is not a bad sequel. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to make that you know because it had the original Craig Craig T Nelson was in it. Also, coach. also known as Coach, yeah, um, and, and he he, uh, he kind of plays the same character in that movie that he that he does in Coach. I think he plays the same character in virtually every movie. Uh, yeah, I, I think he's just kind of the guy. You know? <laughs> and I love Craig T. Nelson. I, I do just, too. Yeah, he just doesn't have a whole lot of versatility, but that's okay. Not a versatile actor, kind of a, a guy that did that. But uh, you know, you got the evil preacher man slash beast coming back. You got the little. A uh, small lady that talks like this. It's Caroline. She's is back in, the in that, too? She's in Poltergeist, too, as well. I and, can't remember um, Poltergeist, too. The, the, the American Indian uh, that's uh, kind of communicating with the dark side. I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't even think about it. I was just, like, watching it, and I was like, yeah. that's a hell of a sequel, you know, all things considered, as sequels go. Um, I also watched Amityville Horror, and... Most of the sequels to that movie aren't as quite as good as the first one. Good. Most yeah. of the Friday the Thirteenth aren't eh, quite as good. But uh, I thought Poltergeist Two probably doesn't get the love and respect that it deserves. And, uh, That's interesting. And then I started reading about that movie, and you know it's a Spielberg deal. It was originally a Spielberg deal, and like E.T. and Poltergeist both kind of broke off from what was supposed to be a dark sequel to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Another Spielberg movie, which did not, if, if I recall, the amount of money he spent on that versus what it grossed, it, it right. did, did not go according to plan. Right, did not. It, but I, I was just like sitting there thinking, I was like, you know, it's kind of amazing. A lot of people don't think about how Hollywood works sometimes or how it used to work when they actually made good movies. Right. Um, where... You know, a, a a project that maybe never got off the ground. It was supposed to be called Fallen Skies or something like this. Kind of gave us two pretty good movies, and then a pretty good sequel with Poltergeist too. You know, you know, careening off of that, if you will. So, uh, I just kind of thought it was kind of inter- a little interesting movie trivia that out of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, we got Poltergeist and E.T. Well, I know one thing: Poltergeist one was and that was before we even had pg-13 i was a kid when that came out and i was as i've said many times not your usual kid wasn't really huge into cartoon i mean i love my flintstones don't get me wrong i love my bugs bunny but for the most part i was watching like nfl films when i got home from school and, and became kind of an NFL uh, football geek of sorts, um, historian, whatever. I couldn't get enough. And I watched a lot of uh, adult material, R-rated movies, et cetera, that I probably shouldn't have been watching. Um, <laughs> but I had access to a TV when I was like 12, and what can I say? That Emmanuel, she uh, – she made a good. She made a good film from time to time, late night on cinema. No, and, and I watched the, the horror movies, Friday the Thirteenth and Halloween, and and I always, even as a kid, I thought it was silly. You know, I thought it was like, okay, it's just so fake, it's so you know. So I I wasn't. I think 
my parents knew like, eh, he, he sees through it. He's not going to be one of these kids that all of a sudden is like going out with a hockey mask and trying to murder people. And I haven't done that as of yet. Uh, and I really don't think that's going to be a factor anytime soon in my life. So I, I very little, very few movies actually freak me out. I've mentioned before the shining to this day freaks me out and it's so good and it's so real. I think they're actually coming up with a pseudo sequel, it, which I doubt I'll even watch. Well, it, it's sort of like a continuation of the story. Continuation, yeah, okay. Yeah, and, and Stephen King actually gave his blessing to it. From okay. I, I saw the preview, and I was, like, not interested. <laughs> I mean, without Nicholson, The Shining is not The Shining. Here's Johnny. I mean, he is so freaking good in that movie. But Poltergeist is the first movie that literally freaked me out. That I was like, Mom, Dad, can I sleep in your room? <laughs> I mean, is, I was, yeah. yeah, I was a kid. I mean, I was like, I don't know, seven when that movie came out. And again, it was PG, so you didn't have to, any seven-year-old could see it. Uh, but you look at the material in that movie, that is that is not suitable for a kid with an impressionable mind. That 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 is going to give you nightmares for a while. So I don't know how about the second movie, JC, but I know the first one, left an indelible mark on my soul. The, the second one was just, I mean, because they, it had the, you know, there were different characters in it, like the the preacher man, like, and he was just like, it, he creeped me out because he'd walk around singing hymns and stuff, and he's like, you're going to die. It was just, uh, I don't know, I'd forgotten about yeah. uh, forgotten about all that. But um, right. anyway, Poltergeist 2, not a bad sequel. It, it's like... Close Encounters of the Third Kind gave birth to an evil twin and a good twin. One was E.T., which don't ever talk to me about E.T., please. Okay. Because it just makes me that emotional. Um, oh, that's an emotional film for you. Okay. I mean. I, so you liked it, obviously. I have a soul. I mean. Well, when, I, I don't know. When, I mean, not, every, not everybody was a fan of E.T. When E.T.'s sitting there in the frozen uh, refrigerator there at the end yeah, and, and yeah, the kid's yeah. crying and E.T.'s going to die and then it gets, right. comes back to life and he goes, I'll be right here. I mean, come on, man. It chokes me yeah. up. I'm going to get a little... Uh, I I'm this. chopping some onions here, man. All right. I'm making chili. Get, anyway. It gets you too traumatic before we even get into the, the latest <laughs> NCAA ruling. I mean, that's just not... <laughs> that's just not good. Uh, I mentioned at the top, and this might be a horror movie in itself, what, what's um, potentially going to go on with this rule, but this was inevitable. You and I talked about it. Um, the moment that certain states decided to get involved and and basically force the NCAA's hand. The NCAA has been able to, for most of its existence, just kind of shrug off any type of movements uh, the, the, remember a few years ago when, when people thought, oh, that, that Northwestern group of football players, they were really going to move the needle with their whole stance. It never worked. The NCAA has been pretty bulletproof. They're almost like big tobacco when it comes to a lot of stuff. But in this particular case, it's the perfect way. You're not really taking the NCAA on in terms of you have to make the schools pay the student athletes. This is a way of circumventing that. And so the, the pot of money that's sitting there for all of these uh, administrators, schools, coaches, conferences, it's not being touched. Theoretically, it's not being touched. Uh, this, this, was the, this was the smart way to go about it. And while everybody is bashing the NCAA, maybe they ought to bash the people that represent college athletes for not thinking of implementing this a little bit sooner. This could have been done 10 years ago, quite frankly. But – 
it is going to change things. And we don't know exactly. Now is, and I talked about this a couple weeks ago. Now is when the NCAA actually has to earn its money because this is happening. It's a runaway freight train. It's not stopping. And they finally realized that. And today was a significant part of that. This is really a landmark day in a lot of ways. October 29th, 2019 is the beginning of a new era in college athletics. Now you have to find a way to keep it under control. And that is going to be the biggest challenge. And I've always said this, and I'll repeat it. I mean, I was watching, I'm not going to mention the name, but a, a talking head again, who can barely put two sentences together, but he's using terms like indentured servitude and things like to describe college athletes who, in addition to having everything paid for them, get cost of attendance. There are some student athletes who have admitted they're pocketing $12,000 cash just on cost of attendance and other scholarship money because everything else is already paid for. So they're not starving. They don't struggle to buy a pizza or take their girlfriend to the movies. But I've never been against them getting more. That's fine. But you do have to realize, now that this thing is going through, if you don't think there's going to be people that are lined up to cheat the system on this and manipulate and exploit it in every way possible. JC, you've been on the front lines of recruiting coverage for a long time. You know how dirty it is now. The black market just got a whole lot blacker when this thing goes through. Loophole. And, I mean, all and th- these guidances, the, the guidance – that they put it. It's horse crap. It, it's so ambiguous. Um, and I know this isn't the final result. They have to hammer out the details, but d- just like the NC, I mean, you know, athletes must be treated similarly as non-athletes unless a compelling reason exists to differentiate. Okay. I was a pretty good actor when I was in college. You know, I had a, a $300 a semester acting scholarship that I had to go help build sets and stuff for at uh, the University of South Carolina Upstate uh, when I was a young man. Pretty good actor, right? I could have printed up a bunch of J.C. Sherbert T-shirts and gone out and tried to sell them and, you know, made money as a student, and that was perfectly legal. I wouldn't have lost my acting scholarship. Um, Justin Fields, if he goes and prints up a bunch of Justin Fields T-shirts and tries to sell them, Obviously, he is going to be a more popular uh, T-shirt <laughs> than the non-athlete, okay? So, so I, I don't know how you – I mean, obviously, there are compelling reasons why this is different because nobody wants to buy a J.C. Sherbert was really good in summer and smoke uh, T-shirt. <laughs> they want to buy Justin Fields Heisman Trophy contender T-shirt, you know? I mean, that's just – so that's BS right off the bat. Any changes must ensure fair and, fair and balanced competition. Sorry, you're not going to have it. You know why? Because no. some fan bases who are the pri- it's the primary market for likeness and image and name and things like that, some fan bases are just larger than others. Some fan bases are more committed than others financially. You know, when you, you have a huge – I mean, you know, think about the size of, like, the Texas fan base. And, and you told me this, Mike. We were on a radio show in, in Columbia, South Carolina – many moons ago. And we had a friend of yours that uh, was the play-by-play person for Alabama basketball. Don't remember his name quite frankly. Oh, Chris Stewart. Yeah. yeah. And this was when this was Nick Saban's first national championship in 008, 08, 09, 09. And we had him right before the game in the Rose Bowl that day. 
And they were playing Texas. And he said, look, this is Alabama football returning to the national championship game for the first time in 17 years. It's Alabama football. He's like, but the people I've talked to out in California for requests for tickets, travel packages, gear, is six to one in favor of Texas. Mm-hmm. And, and and that's not. I'm not saying Texas is like you know. Good, you need to go investigate them because they're going to cheat. They're just a bigger fan base because it's sure. a bigger state and it's a bigger school. And, and and so and they got a lot of oil wells there too. Yeah, no, and and there's money and there's oil money as we, we've all we've all kind yes. of affirmed here. So that's it. There must be differentiation between collegiate and professional opportunities. What in the hell does that even mean? Um, <laughs> you know, you're not, if you're going to go do an advertisement for a car dealership, you're, you're act, technically a professional actor, you know, a professional spokesman. How, how do you differentiate? You know, how do you differentiate between that? Uh, a, reaffir- a reaffirmation that athletes are student first and not university employees. That's a CYA legalese and any change must protect the recruiting environment. Okay. Biggest complaint I get a lot of times from coaches at schools, at all schools, uh, in sports, basketball, and football, the two major ones, is just the, the crap that goes on in recruiting. So we are now saying we're, we have to protect the current environment <laughs> from, from this new stuff. Um, it, it, it's, to, to me, I just, look, I, I'm not against it. It's the United States of America. I'm not against it. I don't agree with the indentured servitude crap or anything like that because I, I think the free market works both ways, and I'll continue to maintain that uh, fans and supporters of college athletics care, care far more about the name on the front of the jersey than the back. Um, one and done for NCAA basketball didn't kill NCAA basketball. You know, the guys that mm-hmm. could go, go do what they – if you can go do, go do. You know, right. if you can't go do, go, go to school, you know? And, um, so, so I, I think that it's, it's another example of, you know, a, a thing where you look and you, you're glad that there's an attempt at progress, but the way this is going to shake out is you're right. It's going to change collegiate athletics and there, there will, th- this may cause anything, I mean, it may throw the competitive balance in major sports completely off. We may have, to, we may see like a, a move toward, a, you know, different divisions and things like that, you know, because some schools well, just aren't going to be able to compete with others. Well, we've, you know, we've already, as we've mentioned several times, uh, we've basically narrowed the field. You know, there's 130 or so Division One schools, but basically there's there's 64 playing at the FBS level, and for for in a lot of circles, that's all that matters, right? I mean, we've we've even we've even given little catchy little nicknames for it. It's the Power Five and the Group of Five, and the Group of Five is a cute nickname, but it might as well be called Division Two or One Double A. If if you want to remove the euphemistic tag from it, it's a different level of football that doesn't get treated the same, doesn't have nearly the financial resources, has no chance of making it into the college football playoff, whether it's four, six, or eight, unless they make a specific stipulation for it. Um, This is now going to splinter at another level, in my estimation. Uh, And I hope we – the great thing about these podcasts, they're on file forever, right? We're we're closing in on close to 100 now. And uh, so it'll be fun to, to, to look back at this and listen to it five years from now. So, so log this. I think you're going to go from 64 
to a significantly smaller number. So they might still be all in the FBS pool, but as you pointed out, there are some schools that just have much more financial resources to go ahead and pay players. And that's really what we're doing because we're talking about artificial demand. Even a, even a big-time player like Justin Fields, if I was like a gung-ho Ohio State fan, yeah, I might spend 15 20 bucks on a T-shirt. But if I know I, it'll help me get a, a, a competitive advantage – I could charge a hundred and find a bunch of people that will actually pay it, not because they think that T-shirt's worth it or they'll even ever wear it, because they want to go ahead and win football games and attract recruits. Mm-hmm. This is the this is the biggest thing to come down the pike in college athletics since 1984. Yeah, for those that don't know what happened in 1984, and years ago I remember reading a great book by Walter Byers, former NCAA executive director was called unsportsmanlike conduct and it was all about the formulation of the ncaa and the history of college sports and how they came up with the term student athlete etc etc and there's a whole chapter in there on 1984 and that's when georgia and oklahoma see back in the day the ncaa controlled the tv rights for every school and of course back in the day there was only two or three games on a given saturday that were even on national television it's not like today where every fbs school is on tv Every Saturday or Thursday or Friday, or if it's the Mac, it could be Tuesday at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Whenever they tell the Mac to play, the Mac's like, yes, sir, we're going to play. <laughs> um, but, it, but in 1984, Georgia and Oklahoma took it to court. Georgia and Oklahoma said, enough of this nonsense. We want the, the ability to negotiate our own television rights. And they won. They won the case. And from that point on, the NCAA has virtually no control. You see, the SEC negotiates its own contracts with CBS, with ESPN and the SEC network. The Big Ten negotiates its own contract with Fox and the Big Ten network. That's where we are, and it has in, in, enabled these schools to get hundreds of millions more dollars that they ever would, that they never would have gotten if the NCAA controlled it. So it's it's very significant. Now I, I want to point out one other thing, and I'm going to go to an argument that I used to have 20 years ago when I was doing sports talk radio. And back then, a a big controversy, JC, in professional sports was, do we need a salary cap? Of course, the NFL had one, and Major League Baseball didn't have one. The Yankees were spending five times more than anybody else, and they were basically buying World Series after World Series. Sorry, Yankee fans, you were doing it. You were buying World Series after World Series. That's fine. That was the rules. The trophies are still there. No one's going to take it away. And, there, and, and I always was saying, I always make up the point that, look, you need a salary cap in all professional sports to be fair. And inevitably, you'd get somebody that would make the following argument. Well, we don't tell Sylvester Stallone how much he can make in a movie. We don't cap it at $10 million. Heck, he made $25 million for Rambo 6. Same thing, isn't it, Mike? No, it's not. And let me tell you why. <laughs> You're talking about actors in Hollywood. If I'm Sylvester Stallone and I'm able to negotiate through my agent $30 million for a bad movie, uh, that doesn't hurt Arnold Schwarzenegger making $35 million for the same bad movie. It doesn't, it doesn't hurt Tom Cruise playing the same cocky character getting $30 million in a movie or Denzel Washington playing the same cocky character. It, for $30 million of film, it doesn't hurt anybody per se. 
all those actors are actually they're they're benefited by other actors just like in, in our profession jc you want to see other people at 24 7 sports get raises and do well i want to see other people that are uh, announcers and broadcasters make more money because that can only mean better things for me but here's where it's different let's just keep it college football for a second if I'm McDonald's, okay, I want – what do I want to do? Do I want to make a lot of money and have Burger King make a lot of money and have Wendy's make a lot of money? No. I want a monopoly like any other business. I want to drive them out of business. If I'm Coke, I don't want Pepsi, okay? If I'm McDonald's, I don't want Wendy's. I want to own as much of the market share if, as possible, and if not, I want a monopoly because that behooves me. I don't need them to be around to survive. In fact, my overall financial well-being is better without them. In a league, which is what college football is, and this is the same argument I would make about the salary cap years ago when it came up. In a league, I don't want the Big Ten, Pac-12, Big 12, ACC to go out of business just so the SEC can be better off. Because college football gets pretty stale if you've only got 14 teams in it. And then you start eliminating teams that don't have the financial resources, like a Vanderbilt, uh, and so on and so forth. If I'm the Big 12, we've already seen how the, the Big 12 has been run in, in a lot of ways by two schools, Texas and Oklahoma, and that's not been overly good for the conference. If I have it so that Texas is able to outspend everybody on players – and makes everybody else worse, that's not good for the Big 12. In other words, if you have a small group of schools that can clearly outspend everybody and the gap widens to a ridiculous point, and we've already talked about how that gap is now without being able to basically buy recruits, now all of a sudden I think there's a point of no return. It can be detrimental to the sport overall. I'm not saying that's going to happen. Because we don't know the limitations, the stipulations. If the NCAA is smart, they will try to make a way to where they could say, look, once you get there, if you want to give the kid a ridiculous amount of money for T-shirts or working at a car shop that we know is artificial demand, but, you know, wink, wink, nod, nod, you're taking care of them, fine. But just don't do it in recruiting. Don't buy players in the recruiting process. Once they get to campus, if you want to be creative, we'll look the other way. We're not going to question every uh quote unquote likeness deal but they need to figure out a way to limit recruiting if they can't if they can it's the true wild wild west you can't convince me that that's not going to be detrimental to collegiate sports oh, it absolutely will i mean and it, you know i think it hurts football worse than it would hurt basketball <laughs> just to be honest because basketball these days if you really dig in and look at <laughs> Who are the teams winning championships and playing for championships right now? It's not Kentucky who gets the lottery. You know, they basically go and get, you know, three of the top ten every year. And and um, and those guys usually go into the NBA and, you know, do whatever. And, and Calipari, Coach Cal does a great job of that. And, you know, Duke has its share of guys like that. And, you know, then there are other schools like, you know, North Carolina kind of got out of that business a few years back. And they won a national championship last time I checked two years ago um, and played for one the year before. And Texas Tech played for a national championship 
last year. You know, Virginia won a national championship. Right. Last year. Wisconsin made a Final Four Wisconsin, not long. In fact, you know, knocked off a thirty-eight no Kentucky team. So I, yeah, your point is valid. And so I think the competitive balance in the post in the way the postseason kind of flows with the you know you know the sudden death tournament, <laughs> the the NCAA tournament that that kind of balances things out uh, in NCAA men's basketball, in my opinion. Uh, in football, what you're going to have is you know, top players lining up to get a quote-unquote good deal before they are even top players. And with 85 scholarships, you're basically going to, you know, have, you know, a certain number. And it's already a little bit this way. Um, I don't know that it will be the same schools, though, because, you know, I look at a fa- – like I mentioned fan base size. Clemson University has a, has a very good – an amazingly big fan base for a school its size. There aren't as many Clemson Tigers out there, though, as there are Texas Longhorns or Ohio State Buckeyes or, or fans of the Alabama Crimson Tigers or, or Georgia Bulldogs right there uh, in a bigger state next door. Um, so so, so I, I don't know that it'll be the same teams we have dominating now, but you're talking about schools will have the ability that are committed uh, to have a monopoly on players, and um, that's just how it is, and you know, it, it's going to come down. It, it, it's almost bad that, you know, this almost eliminates to, you know, having a really good coach that can outcoach everybody and do more with less. Because at some point, if you absolutely do not have, uh, you know, if you don't have the talent and you have to play an Alabama every week, you know, and let's say there are four or five Alabamas running around, you know, yeah, they may knock each other off, but – um they're still going to be awfully tough to defeat on an, any given Saturday because it's uh, you're going to run out of players. And I also think that it's it's going to you know it's going to cause some discussions too about cutting football scholarships um, because some schools are going to be like, okay, well, you know, school A is buying up all these players because they have a big fan base and they're committed to buying jerseys and image likenesses and things like that, you know, so. Let's just let them have 15 slots a year and 60 on scholarship. And let's slash that down to make the playing field more even, which I think is unfortunate too because that denies people of legitimate – the other 97% of the college football players that aren't going to have their jersey sold, that just want to go get an education and play ball, you know, that's going to take some opportunities away from them. And I don't like anything that takes opportunity – Mm-hmm. Uh, away from it, from a young man that's uh, got a talent. So, you know, there, there's all kinds of ways to look at it. I I just think this this given the way the NCAA is, this is going to open up Pandora's box. There's going to be a lot of reform that's going to have to take place within the scope of this ruling. I'm not saying I disagree with it because I, I think that you know this is something they probably should have looked into a long time ago before you got politicians involved. And even if the NCA has something that's kind of, you know, dumbed down a little bit, Mike, or is kind of like, okay, we're going to do this within our model, legally, if you put a cap on it, I mean, if you've got politicians who, where the law is, no, this is America, this is capitalism. And it's funny that some politicians that are pushing this are not capitalists at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's kind of funny where this is coming from, but uh, uh, I think that, you know, if you have all of that, you know, I, uh, I believe that, 
you know, that could even take it further beyond what the NCAA wants to do in terms of pushing them to just say, no, no, it's, it's, it's the Wild West, it's wide open. And that's going to facilitate some changes within the structure of college sports as we know it. And, and there's really only a couple of extreme ways you can solve it. I really think I'm like a lot of people, maybe even most people, and that I have no problem with student-athletes making money off their likeness, getting more compensation. Uh, they've been continually getting more compensation over the last few years. Uh, don't ever underestimate cost of attendance. That basically is a significant stipend. They don't want to use the word stipend, but that's what it is. And it's free money. And when everything, you know, you, you we were in college. You learn how to stretch a dollar when you're a college student. Most of us who didn't have, you know, our mommy and daddy, like, paying for everything, we had to, we had to, kind of fend for ourselves a little bit uh you learn how to stretch a dollar if i had everything paid for me from clothes to meals to lodging and i could stretch twelve thousand dollars pretty far then if you're going to get some pell grant money i could really stretch my college life pretty far and have a damn good time with it buy cheap beer mm-hmm. have cheap dates <laughs> i mean I, I could still live a really good life with that but we're past that because now everybody knows how much money everybody else is making. So I don't have a problem with that. I also, though, I think like most people, don't want us to get to a point where basically programs are buying success. And I know the very cynical at heart will say, well, isn't that happening already? Here's the thing about that. I, I go to all these college campuses, and one of the first things we do before we – meet with the coaches on Friday is we, we tour the facilities. We see the weight room. We see the, the players lounge. We see all, and I can tell you, it's not just a half dozen, a dozen, two dozen schools that have benefited from all those TV contracts. Contrary to what a lot of people would like you to believe the same morons who took a sociology class are using terms like indentured servitude where they don't know what the hell that really is. <laughs> the, if you look at, if you actually have a chance to see these, the the benefits of all the money that's come in has benefited all of these at a bare minimum power five schools. You look at the facilities of these 64 schools and from, from the Alabama's competing for national championship every year to the TCU's competing for less than that to the, uh, Iowa States, they all have a really nice setup right now. So they, they haven't bought success. What they've bought is, hey, we're in the game, right? Like we don't have to, we no longer have to apologize for, for what we have compared to what the big time program down the road has. They're all doing pretty well. All these kids are living in like palaces, working out in gyms that they'll never see again unless they're playing in the pros. You know, you're not you're not getting this kind of setup at your local uh, Gold's Gym. It's just just not happening. You're not going to be fed. I mean, the, the they all now are treated really well, and I'm all for that. So that's not that's not buying success. That's just buying more of a level playing field. When you open up the Pandora's box, you use your term to this. Now I worry maybe you are buying success. That you literally are buying players. People don't want to use the pay for play uh, mantra, but it's not that far off. If you're actually able to use uh, kind of, again, artificial demand, 
shady type jobs, likeness things, materials, T-shirts, whatever. If you're able to do that and you can just outbid 99% of the other schools that you're going up against for that, that is kind of in a way buying your success. And I don't think that's good for the overall health of the sport. So I just hope they everybody figures out, people much smarter than us, figure out a way to at least keep let these kids benefit, but also keep the, the, the playing field as level as you can. Because there's already – what's the biggest complaint about college football? You and I have talked about it the last couple of years, JC. It's that – it's become a little bit predictable, right? At the top, mm-hmm. we've got the same half dozen schools competing for the same four playoff spots virtually every year. If you get to this point, man, it could become even, dare I say, more predictable. All right. We'll continue to follow that story. Promise you that. But it is a landmark day, and this is going to be landmark legislation, no doubt about it. Not exactly a landmark weekend in college football, but there was some exciting stuff. Led off by the Kansas State win over Oklahoma. What does that do for Oklahoma and the Big 12? Obviously, it's a major hit. Michigan whoops Notre Dame. All of a sudden, Michigan's got some life. I mean, if they could just somehow beat Ohio State, Jim Harbaugh could go from the most heavily criticized big-time coach to one of the most lauded, at least from the Michigan faithful. LSU wins the Tiger Bowl. I told you that game was going to be closer than people thought. It was a fourth-quarter game, and if Auburn does a couple of things differently. I think they might have even been able to spring an upset. Uh, and all of a sudden, with all the Heisman talk, he's not going to win it, but he is going to have his name mentioned a lot more after his performance this weekend. That's Chase Young of Ohio State. He is a ridiculous freak, could be the number one pick in the draft, and, and continues to impress on the field. Oh, by the way, Mark D'Antonio, could it be on the hot seat? Uh, just – just throwing it out there, uh, Michigan State is hardly in a great spot uh, this year. Uh, and I continue to be amazed by what a guy in, at an SEC school that nobody's talking about is doing completely under the radar. We'll get to that when we go conference uh, by conference. But th- those are some of the things that stood out to me, JC. We we do our weekly DEFCON list. Let's break it out. What are we looking at here? DEFCON 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And, and I will point out again. If you haven't seen War Games, DEFCON 5, that's where you want to be. Peace in the air, peace, love, and harmony. Everything's good. In the case of a college football team, you're playing for big stakes. Things are going well. DEFCON 1, you've hit the bottom. It's a bad time in your world. DEFCON 3, you're kind of in the middle, obviously, so you get the idea. So let's break it out, please. Okay, DEFCON 5 right now. Uh, I'm going to throw Kansas State there. Um you know, K-State, really good under Bill Snyder year in and year out. They go and they hire Ron Prince, who was a disaster. Um, <laughs> although he did have James Franklin on his staff, who I don't think is a disaster. Uh, Bill Snyder comes back. His time kind of was at an end. And they go and make this hire that, you know, none of the talking heads were t- – some people were like, oh, that's a good out-of-the-box hire. Uh, Chris Kleiman, who'd won some national championships at, at the one AA level, the FCS level. And he comes in there, and, and this team, I've watched him play this year, Mike. You know, they won an early game at Mississippi State before Mississippi State knew they weren't very good. Uh, <laughs> they uh, beat Oklahoma this weekend. Uh I think that we talk about certain programs having certain standards. K-State fans, yeah, they've missed a couple of shots to really have a breakthrough national championship type year, but they're happy contending. 
in the Big 12 and going to bowl games, and they pack it out and all that. So I'm going to say after beating Oklahoma, they're at DEFCON 5. Going back to the playoff teams or the teams in contention, obviously Ohio State's at DEFCON 5. They're rolling. That that Wisconsin game was actually pretty competitive for about a quarter and a half, and then Ohio State just you know jumped up on the Badgers and you know threw them over the side of the boat. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's what it reminded me of. They were just like, okay, we tussled, we tussled, you're going overboard, plump. Um, Wisconsin had no answer for a very fast, good defense. Chase Young is outstanding. That's why, you know, people talked about Maryland coming into the Big Ten. Um, you know, he's from DeMatha in the D.C. area. And with Maryland being part of that conference, that league gets a lot more exposure than it used to. It used to just be that Penn State could go down there and get guys – maybe a Michigan or Ohio State every now and then. Now everybody goes in there and just raids that state for talent. Chase Young is one of those very talented uh, Maryland players, and, and I agree with him being in the Heisman uh, you know, talk. I, I think Clemson was very impressive. I'm going to put them back on DEFCON 5 because just like a couple of years ago, Mike, if you notice, they're getting better and better every week. They're getting better and better. And 59-7 to against Boston College. I know Boston College isn't great this year. Pretty impressive going. And you watch. You watch Travis Etienne. And you watch his carries start to, to go. It's, it's, it's kind of a masterful thing Dabo Sweeney does uh, in terms of getting his team to peak at the right time. They did that 2016. They did that really in 2017 until they ran into Alabama in the Sugar Bowl. If you remember, they were playing as well as anybody in the country. They were the number one seed. Uh, and they certainly did it last year, too. And then I'm going to go with LSU, and then they kind of survived that game with Auburn. Auburn's a good football team. That was a dangerous game for LSU because you, everybody's always already talking about Bama. And, you know, LSU typically beats Auburn at home, and I guess they did again. It's still been since 1999 since Auburn's won down there. But uh, that was a game they could have lost, but they didn't. Every team has a game like that where you go, wow. Glad we survived that one. <laughs> and uh, and that's what happened there. So I'm going to put them all on DEFCON 5. And who would you say was on DEFCON 1? Or you just went 5? I just went – those those are my you, 5. We'll go you, – you, You're just going 5. Well, I won't, I won't argue with, uh, with any of those. I will say I haven't placed them exactly in a DEFCON spot. But to your point on Wisconsin – Wisconsin and Notre Dame, to me, have just become the ultimate tease programs. And look, that's not the worst thing in the world to be. In order to tease me, you've got to be pretty good. You've got to be somewhat enticing. You've got to have me believe that you're good enough to get to that upper echelon and national championship contender. But inevitably, this is what happens, right? We start, we start buying in on one of these programs, and then inevitably they lay an egg. So... Look, nothing against Wisconsin or Notre Dame. Well coached. Now, some might disagree with Notre Dame on well coached. Um, uh, I don't think the problem is Coach Kelly. I, I think I think it's Notre Dame. Is just their time as being that elite program has passed, and that happened a long time ago, post Lou Holtz. But that's a whole other story. I, I just think that they're they're good programs, great fan bases. I enjoy them. I really enjoy Wisconsin. I've not been to Camp Randall, and that's on my bucket list. But watching that game, Wisconsin's a hard team to watch. And I get it. That's kind of what they have to do to really compete in the Big Ten. 
At least I think that's what they have to do. Who knows? Maybe the next coach they hire uh, is opens it up and they don't run it 40 times. But I mean, you, what you saw too is Jonathan Taylor looked pedestrian. You, you saw a, a team that didn't have answers once they fell behind. You saw a team that continued to struggle to move the football. In the case of Notre Dame, oof, I don't even know where to start with that one. No excuses to get beaten that badly by a Michigan team that's struggled to do much very well against good teams in the Jim Harbaugh era. But uh, I, I would just say for, for both of them, disappointing performances. Disappointing performances overall by Wisconsin and Notre Dame. Yeah, I, I, I expected that Notre Dame game to be much more competitive. Um, and quite frankly, Wisconsin too. You know, sometimes when a team – looks ahead and I th- I'm convinced against Illinois that's exactly what Wisconsin did you know you're up 23 to 7 and you blow it um you know they come back and they play in that big game the next week and they play really well and I, I like I said for a quarter and a half I thought hmm this one this could be closer than people think and then all of a sudden boom um and look Ohio State under Urban Meyer last year they they moved the ball well on offense there was something wrong with their defense. And I always kind of – it was puzzling to me because they have a lot of talent. And they fixed that side of the ball, and they're very proficient on offense now. And, I mean, this team, people are talking, are they the best team in the country? I don't know, but I definitely have them in my top four. I mean, especially after last week. They have more challenges, and we will know one way or the other. But um, that was it. But, yeah, Wisconsin and Notre Dame, they, they do kind of tease you at times. Um I feel bad for Badgers fans because they started so well, and then now that you know, now they're not doing so well with two straight losses. But uh, you know, it kind of is what it is. But uh, I think that that's uh, that's pretty accurate description. Uh, DefCon four. I'm going to go with Texas. Um, and Texas may even be a DefCon three. Mike, I was going to say, I you're, you might be being kind to put Texas at four, right? I, I've got those boys in the three zone. Here's a team that's uh, was and Notre Dame was in DefCon four as well. But uh, here's a team that was supposed to contend for the Big Ten or I'm sorry, Big Twelve this year. They've now lost three games and almost lost to Kansas. Uh, <laughs> you know, Tom Herman's teams. They they even going back to Houston, they were really good in big game situations. And I, and I thought they played well against Oklahoma, quite frankly, and very competitive and played well against LSU. Now that we know how good LSU is, but they tend to lose games. Sometimes they shouldn't. And, you know, they got out coached and outplayed, had a bunch of turnovers. Uh, Gary Patterson and his team kind of got up off the mat, you know, so I'd, I'd have to put Texas kind of in that four range. Um, and then I got a slew of them in three and two. <laughs> oh, I, uh, I got a slew of them in four. I, I, I'm, and I've, I've kind of had them there the last couple of weeks, but they continue to impress. Michigan, excuse me, Minnesota, eight uh, zero, an, another key win. Now look, I know what everybody's waiting on. Um, next week because I got to buy this week. So we got two eight zero matches matchups coming up next week. That's the first time in the AP poll history that's ever happened. And by the way, the point spreads are already out on that. We'll talk about that on our other uh, preview podcast later on. But Minnesota's about to go up against Penn State, and I'm sure if they lose, everybody will say, see, I told you they're not that good. Uh, whatever. This is their best start since 1941. So I'm not going to take away anything 
from what Minnesota do, has done. I don't care if they don't win another game all year. That to me is impressive. Baylor, the fact that they're seven and one mm-hmm. uh, is still to me very impressive. I, I think it's a it's a great story overall what Matt Rule has done. Uh, Oregon, I'll, I'll I'll put the Ducks up there at seven and one. They're they're keeping hope alive for the Pac-12. If they keep winning out, we'll talk about those scenarios here in a sec. But Oregon, uh, the only losses to Auburn, a game, quite frankly, they really easily could have won. They blew a two-score lead in the fourth quarter. Uh, Florida, 7-1, and one, big matchup coming up against the Georgia Bulldogs, easily one of the games of the, of the weekend on DEFCON 4. Penn State at 8-0. You know, Penn State is, is kind of the fly in the ointment in the Big Ten and maybe in this whole playoff race when it comes right down to it. So those would be those would be the uh, kind of the five-pack, I guess you would, uh, on DEFCON 4 for me. Yeah, Baylor's 7-0. They didn't uh, play. 7-1. Sorry, well, no, I, I thought they had lost too, but that was Iowa State lost to Oklahoma State, and Baylor yeah. beat Oklahoma State the week before. Now, and they got West Virginia on Halloween night, so they should go to 8-0. Then it's at TCU, it's Oklahoma in Waco, it's Texas in Waco, and then it's the Hat and the Jayhawks in Lawrence to end the season. I mean, if Baylor runs the table, I think you got to put them in the playoff. You know, I mean, you know, to me, uh, you know, if they I, run it, yeah, but, but absolutely, I mean, you know, just because they have Oklahoma and Texas at home, I, you know, I'd, I'd rather have them that the one on the road. But uh, man, oh man, but they play West Virginia this weekend. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm all for those in DEFCON four. I think that there's, uh, you know, there's just something to be said about it. Now, I would throw, I'm going to throw Louisville in there too, Mike. Big win over Virginia for Scott Satterfield. His quarterback only attempted ten passes in the football game, right? And they're five and three, and he inherited an absolute dumpster fire. So, hats off to Scott Satterfield, the head coach of the Louisville Cardinals, coming up from App State and. You know, just continuing on to keep on, so that uh, that guy can coach some football. In my he's opinion, he's a good coach. You know? And and look, and and no offense to the guy, and I can't even remember his name off the top of my head. The head coach of App State now, and they're nationally ranked. And go ahead, give it to me, Eli Drinkwitz. Thank you, thank you. Uh, that's a great name. I should remember that for the few. If I ever uh, have a stage name, that's going to be my stage name, <laughs> Eli Drinkwitz. Um, I'm sure he's a fine coach in his own right, but basically. Coach Satterfield left him the keys to a fine Cadillac over there in Boone, North Carolina. That's one of the other things I tend to look at when I'm judging with some of these uh, group five or uh, mid-major type programs. When the coach leaves for a bigger job, how does he leave the program? Look at App State. Program's in really good shape. They're one of the better stories this year in college football. Another feather in the cap of of Coach Satterfield. So I'm with you there. I think that's – I think they're – they're a good story for sure. All right, DEFCON 3, I'm going to go with um, maybe two ships passing in the night. Both won this weekend, but UCLA, don't look now, Mike. The Bruins are getting better. Chip Kelly and his group getting better. Good win over Arizona State. Um, The Trojans of Southern Cal struggled to beat a so-so Colorado team, and uh, I don't know. I get the feel they're going nowhere fast. Um, so I would, I would, I would throw the two Los Angeles schools in DEFCON three kind of trending in opposite directions at this point. Uh, no argument there. Absolutely. No argument there. I think the pack, you know, if we had an expanded playoff, 
the, the Pac-12 would be a really interesting race because every time we think we've figured out who the team to beat is in the Pac-12, we realize we're wrong. You know, I mentioned Oregon earlier. For a while, it was Southern Cal. For a while, it was Utah. Arizona State was a great story. Washington's always competitive. There's a lot of good there. Unfortunately, it's just overshadowed by the fact that, once again, they have a very minuscule chance at best to get in the playoff. Uh, Once again, there's the quality of play, some would say, is not so hot. There's talk now about the salaries not being competitive with the other Power Five conferences, that all goes back to trying to form your own television network. You see how that's gone. Uh, the Pac-12 at times has been its own worst enemy. But there, there is an intriguing race going on in that conference, and there always seems to be an intriguing game or two each and every week in that league. Yeah, I love it. I love the Pac-12. I, th- I think the Pac-12 has a lot of potential. Um, and I've said this before, every team, every program in that league at one point or another has been pretty doggone good. You don't have a school in the Pac-12 that you look at and go, yeah, these guys have never been good. They're not, they never will be good. You know, it, it'll be a miracle if they get to a bowl, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, Colorado, since they've joined the league, they've struggled mightily at times, but they've won a division. And they also won a national championship 30 years ago. You know, Utah had an undefeated year under Urban Meyer and um, was a really good team when Alex Smith was the quarterback. And then Kyle Whittingham, a couple of years later, goes to the Sugar Bowl and knocks off Saban and the Crimson Tide. Utah's usually pretty good, you know. Uh, And I feel bad because they they are their own worst enemies. They are victims of some... You know, bad decisions. You have to keep in mind when talking about coaching salaries too. If you're making five million a year coaching in Starkville, Mississippi, that goes along a lot further than three million a year coaching in Los Angeles and, and in that high tax state. Um, you know, the take home just does, isn't even comparable. So they actually should be paying more. You know, and uh, and that's just head coaching salaries. That's not to mention assistant coaches and the fact that. You know, with what you're making as an assistant coach on a one-year contract, if you have a family and you have to live in California, uh, it's ridiculous. Arizona's a little bit better. Oregon is a high-tax state. Washington's a high-tax state. And if I'm not mistaken, Colorado and Utah are okay. So mm. there you go. That's the setup out there in terms of if, you, if you're a coach and want to coach in that league, you know, prepare to hand over a bunch of money to your state government. <laughs> um uh, you know, so I'm with you right there. I just I, I think that you know the, the the longer this season goes for the Trojans, Mike, the more I think we're starting to see that you know Clay Hilton's done pretty good, done pretty well this year. He's got a good record, but the more you you just almost think that these guys are going to say, all right, well, this is about as far as we can go. Um, and if they don't win the Pac-12, I just I don't know what's going to happen with him. I, I think he's as good as gone, especially with a new AD and. Uh, I, I just don't. And it's, it's funny because when you talk to some people or you listen to some people in the coaching circles, they do have a lot of respect for Clay Hilton. It, it, this is not this is not a guy that's just kind of a laughing stock. There's some respect there for him overall, uh, but maybe this this is just not a good fit for him. This magnitude of a job, and it's going to take something extra. And of course, it, it, as long as Urban Meyer is hovering around there and showing up. <laughs> At the stadium on the Fox uh, pregame show, and you know, the, Urban Meyer is going to cost some people their jobs 
because there's going to be many more schools that think they can get him than schools he's actually considering going to. But that thought, that 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 pipe dream of yeah, Urban Meyer, um, it, it, it's it's going to cause a lot of angst because we don't have a lot of. This is not a slam dunk year for coaches on the market. At least I don't think it is. I, I don't, you know, I, of course, it wasn't that long ago Tom Herman was supposed to be the can't-miss guy. He's done good stuff there, but he's, I wouldn't call him can't-miss in Austin thus far. You, sometimes you just don't know. But, but there's Urban, and then there's what? Who's, who's the hot name other than Urban? I, I came up with a little list, and, and I think um... – I think there's I, guess, I guess you have. <laughs> well, they have, this is the first time. Now, look, no, just Gamecock fans. I, this is not no. This game. Just to clarify, there for the Gamecock fans, it wasn't wasn't because of that. But um, I, it's better than it has been because you have some guys that have good reps at jobs that maybe aren't ideal that continue to have tangible results or they're having breakthrough years. Um, so I came up with this, um, and I know Scott Satterfield, that he would be on the list just because I know he's been one year at Louisville. But, man, you know, like you mentioned, what he left behind and doing what he's doing with what he inherited, that guy's a coach. You know, he's a ball coach. It's like climate at Kansas State. Just because he came from another level doesn't mean he's not a good coach. Uh, quite frankly, I think if North Carolina had not brought Mac Brown out of retirement, which I – right now I think was a brilliant idea. I didn't know about it at the time, but heck, they're much better than they were. Um, He probably should have been the next coach at North Carolina. I mean, because he's from North Carolina and that kind of thing. But taking him out of the equation, because he's been there one year. Okay, so P.J. Fleck, always been known as a good recruiter, signed a top 25 class at Western Michigan, which was, you know, an amazing feat in terms of recruiting (laughs) rankings. Um and has Minnesota playing good football, and he's a dynamic guy. I mean, people may not have heard about him, but he's a dynamic guy. Matt Rule, um, everybody kind of questioned the fit when he went to Baylor because he's not a throw it all over the yard a thousand times, score 50 points coach. Look at them, Mike. I mean, they're, <laughs> Baylor was a dumpster fire. You know, people credit Bill O'Brien with keeping Penn State at 500 after their scandal, you know, tried to wreck their program. Matt Rule – who ironically is a Penn State graduate, um, has done a better job at Baylor than I think O'Brien did at Penn State. Uh, And then, of course, Matt Campbell at Iowa State. So so there are some guys out there now, whereas we went through a period where you kind of looked around and you kind of found a reason in your head not to hire certain guys, and then certain guys got jobs and you kind of shook your head at. Then we finally did have some movement from one FBS school to another, which rarely happens when Mullen went to Florida, Jimbo Fisher went to Texas A&M, Willie Taggart went from Oregon to Florida State. Um, And you had some guys that had gotten fired, like Will Muschamp got rehired at South Carolina, and Ed Orgeron got rehired at LSU. Um, And then it was Tom Herman. But now you're starting to see some guys uh, kind of emerge that, that are at FBS jobs, but they're not necessarily the best ones. Yeah, it, it and and you mentioned a couple of power five to other power five moves. Yeah. Although I think that's that's becoming more and more rare. Uh, you know, I've been high on the fleck. I've been on that bandwagon for a while, yeah. and I thought there there were some schools that had openings recently that missed the boat. The fact that he landed in Minnesota, just like I think the fact that Coach Norvell is still at uh, 
Memphis, which is where game day is going to be this weekend. Um, I think there's some teams that miss the boat on that potential hire. Uh, but the but once they land in a spot, it's harder to get them away. I, I mean, Louisville doesn't strike me as a program that's going to be frugal about doing whatever they have to do to keep Scott Satterfield. Matt Rule, I'm told from people that know him very well, is not interested in going to like an SEC-type job. He doesn't want to be in the southeastern part of the country. Waco was a radical enough move for him. And this, by, oh, by the way, if you've ever been to Baylor, Baylor's got plenty of money. They are not going to lose a bidding war for Coach Rule's services in the college football level. That would just come down to he wants to be back in the Northeast or he wants a pro job. Um, And then Minnesota, you know, I don't really know enough about Minnesota's finances, but I do know this. Every Big Ten school is swimming in a big pool of money with their TV deal. Uh, And so he's the most exciting thing they've had on that campus in a long, long time in any sport. So they're going to keep him happy. Sure. And so, I mean, all those names you mentioned are great names. But this is what a lot of fan bases have to come to grips with, and this is a whole other podcast. Who you want and who you think will be a good job versus who you can actually attain are very often two different things. And that reality just doesn't come across for a lot of fan bases. Yeah, and I think of the four I mentioned, I, I think that Louisville and Baylor definitely – have the wherewithal to hold on to Satterfield. And look, in Satterfield's case, it's probably because it's year one. You know, you don't want to bail on a job after a year. Nobody really does that. Um, unless you're Willie Taggart. Unless you're Willie Taggart. And then they were glad to see him go. <laughs> they were like, oh, I'll see you. <laughs> um, you want, Mr. Taggart, can we, can we pack for you? Uh, yeah. You know, I look at Minnesota and Iowa State, and those are just ridiculously difficult jobs. Minnesota – is a very, very – I mean, you just kind of look at where they have to recruit, the league they are in, which is a really good league. Um, You know, they have good facilities. They do have money. And, you know, they have had some success in athletics over the years. But Minnesota and Iowa State, you know, those would be the two, if I were a bigger type program, you know, I would think would be more realistic. But And I said FBS, Mike, and I meant Power 5. My brain wasn't functioning when I said that. Power right. 5 to Power 5 is the rare thing. You know, Correct. Group yeah. of 5 to Power 5 is something else. And you, you hit the nail on the head, in my opinion. Mike Norvell, um, I think, is a heck of a, a football coach and probably will land somewhere very soon. Probably, if you're Arkansas, you know, no offense to Chad Morris, you're probably sitting there wondering, hey um, – <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe maybe we should we, maybe we should hire this guy. He's from yeah. Arkansas, you know. So yeah. By the way, I I think uh, and, and and yeah, Iowa State is a, Iowa State's a very difficult job, despite the fact they have a tremendous fan base and they really get behind their school. Uh, but I still in in my in my gut feel like Matt Campbell, if he can especially if he can pick up some momentum late this year and continue to be a, a, a hot hot name, he's a guy I could see going NFL. I think Lincoln Riley stays at Oklahoma. I think Matt Campbell actually might be the the next premier college football coach that lands an NFL gig. By the way, I I, I overlooked and uh, forgive me. SMU certainly belongs still on my DefCon four. They picked up another win uh, in the American. One of my favorite stories of the last few years in college football. Uh, kudos to uh, everything going on there with the Pony Express. DefCon two. How about Syracuse? Remember, a year ago they were a top 25 program and everybody was loving Syracuse football again. Uh, I say again, I don't know. Some people loved them. 
certainly the the people that got a broadcasting degree love them and, and love to let you know that they got a broadcasting degree from there. Um, Syracuse's three wins this year have come against Liberty, Western Michigan, and Holy Cross. They have been bad. They haven't just been disappointing. They have been one of the worst 20 teams in college football. They really have been – I mean, they have been rough. So Syracuse, I'm putting on DEFCON too. Uh, and I would also add Miami. How do you lose at home to Georgia Tech, a team that's just trying to transition out of the Paul Johnson mess and, and get an actual offense for the 21st century? You lose that game at home. I'm sure there were probably only 300 people that were actually students at Miami that were there to watch it. But still, that that situation has just – Remember when they played Florida in week zero and they were competitive and could have won that game? Ever since then, the wheels have just come off the cane. So I'm, I'm putting Miami there on DEFCON 2 and as then, well. Yeah, then they couldn't score in their win over Pitt this past weekend, 16-12 to 12 up there in the cold. They did win the game. But, I mean, how do you justify – I mean, I, I could justify that. But I can't – and, you know, I, I don't understand how this team, when – you know, you hire Manny Diaz, and your problem with when Rick was coaching there was not necessarily your defense. It was your offense couldn't get going. You know, Manny Diaz does not hire a spread guy or anybody that's doing anything terribly different than Miami's done for 30 years on offense. It's all pro style. And you're having to win games 16-12 to 12 and 17-9, to 9 and you're losing at home to Georgia Tech because you can't score. Yeah. I mean, look, some of these defensive coaches need to, get, need to understand this, you know. It, it's not – you can be a very successful coach and be defensive-minded, but you cannot be stubborn and pathetic on offense. And you have to kind of gear your offensive plan to the talent that you get. Miami has annually is one of the fastest teams in the country. You, you got, they got too much speed not to be running it wide open and trying to score as many points as you can. And you could do that in the 80s and 90s with a pro-style system because – Teams were running the daggum wishbone and stuff, but you mm-hmm. can't can't do that anymore. So, yeah, that's my problem with Miami. I've got them and Florida, even though Florida State did beat Syracuse, I've got them on DefCon two. I'm also going to put South Carolina on DefCon two. Forty-one twenty-one loss to Tennessee uh, with a complete meltdown in all three phases of the game in the second half. Two weeks later, you're a long way away from you know the win over Georgia. You know, South Carolina has losses on the road to Missouri and Tennessee, both by 20 points this year. Both division rivals that Will Muschamp had been 6-0 and against in Columbia prior to this year. I don't think Tennessee's a world beater. I don't think that they turned a corner with that win. I just think they're the much better team on Saturday night. Um, and I don't think Missouri, as they've proven the last couple of weeks with losses to Kentucky and Vanderbilt, uh, is a world-beating team either. And I don't think South Carolina is either. People are like, well, South Carolina shouldn't expect to be Alabama. I don't think that's Alabama standards. Eight out of ten losses to FBS level of competition, right? They've lost eight of ten. They did beat Georgia and beat Kentucky. But they, losing to teams like Virginia and North Carolina and Missouri and Tennessee – um, you know, two blown third, fourth quarter leads against Florida. And I, I do agree Florida's kind of separating from the pack in the East compared to the rest of them up there with Georgia. You know, 
I don't know. I, I just think South Carolina, you know, of all the good and the goodwill that they gained by beating Georgia, I just think it's kind of dissipated with the last couple of weeks and then culminating in a loss to a team that, you know, had not scored. I don't think they'd scored 50 points against SEC teams this year. And they got 41 on Saturday night. So they're basically going to have to spring at least one upset, maybe at Texas A&M to be bowl eligible, correct? Yeah. South Carolina's got Vandy at home Saturday night. They've got Heavily a home, favored. They've got a home game against App State. Will be uh, favored, I think. Yeah. Don't you? Uh, not by much, but I think they'll be favored at home against App State, even though App State is nationally ranked. Yeah, it's it's a night game at Williams Bryce. Then they go to A and M, and then Clemson at home. So, who knows? I mean, I, I think I think if they can get to five hundred and get back to a bowl, given the up and down nature of this season, that you know that that, that they can survive. I I, I think a losing season is going to make things a, a lot more interesting and. Columbia than maybe people expected them to be. Yeah, that would uh, make for an interesting talking season, if you will. All right, um, as we've, we're wrapping things up, let's go big picture for a moment. I think we can finally start to, as I said at the top, start to shake down the the playoff picture a little bit. You know, we're heading into week nine. So Oklahoma's loss obviously is detrimental not just to Oklahoma but the Big 12 as a whole. Texas is not going to the playoff, not after the loss to TCU. Uh, there, there's really – you mentioned Baylor. Yes, if Baylor runs the table, I think they're in. And as, as high as, as I am on Matt Rule and as high as I am on uh, the Baylor story, I don't see them running the table. Basically, I think the, the Big 12 has to hope that Oklahoma wins every game and then they're going to need some help. Because if everything let, – let's just go chalk here for a moment. So Clemson wins the ACC – undefeated 13 and 0 they're in uh, Ohio State wins the Big 10 undefeated 13 and 0 they're in let's say because i have this weird feeling if Tua doesn't play LSU could even be a road favorite in Tuscaloosa mm. right i mean if if Mac Jones is the guy i would think LSU be favored so let's just say LSU wins uh, and they're 13 and 0. So now you got your three. I mean, those three would be locks, absolute locks. So here would be your choices, and this is where things get interesting. You'd have Oklahoma winning the Big 12 at 12 and 1. You'd have Oregon winning the Pac 12 at 12 and 1. Again, this is all just based on chalk. And you'd have Penn State 11 and 1, Alabama 11 and 1. Those would be the four teams you chose from. How would you like to be in that committee room? Oh my gosh, that would be tough too. And let's say Tua comes back and and they beat up on Auburn, beat up on Auburn, and they they look I'll, really good. I'll tell you who I think they pick. Tell Alabama. Me. Alabama. If you can tell me Tua's back. If you can, if, if look, there, it's conceivable he could not play against LSU, and then still come back for the, the the Auburn game, the Iron Bowl. But let's say at some point or another he gets back, and Bama loses to LSU at home, but they don't get blown out. Which, by the way, Oklahoma was on the way to getting blown out against Kansas State. That was a, a twenty-five point game in the fourth quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's Oklahoma twelve and one, Oregon twelve and one, Penn State eleven and one, Bama eleven and one, I think the committee 
takes Bama. Because those are humans, not robots, not computers. I'd also want to – I'd be interested in what the Penn State, Ohio State score was. True. You know, okay. I, it's, if, it's competitive. If it's close and competitive, you know. 27-21, Ohio State pulls it out on a Justin Fields touchdown run in the waning seconds. And Penn State wins out. Hmm. Penn State wins out. Penn State Dang. beats Minnesota next week. I think they're about a touchdown favorite in that one. See, that's tough, too, because you, you also, you know, there, there's, a, there's a feeling out there that Bama's not as good as they normally are because they're winning, they're, they're winning games differently. They're giving up yards and points, but they're outscoring everybody, yeah. that kind of thing. So you They know. don't have a great running game like they used to. Now, they, they could have named their score against Arkansas, though. I mean, I don't, yeah, that, that <laughs> I don't think that, that would have been. That um, was a bye week. I also think this, Mike. With that LSU Bama game, and and look, I I think everybody likes watching LSU play football this year. Which, man, I sat there the, in opening week a couple of years ago and watched them play Wisconsin at Lambeau Field to open the season. And Lord, that was just—I think Les Miles got fired after that game because the, that was just ugly, ugly offensive football to watch. Um, I think everybody loves watching them play this year, and uh, I know they're kind of a, around the SEC. People are secretly, because of Bama fatigue or whatever, pulling for LSU to win the game. Don't underestimate the power of Nick Saban having adversity to deal with heading into a football game, though. This rarely happens. True. This never happens when Bama's star quarterback is on the sidelines. And there's enough talent for them to not only win that game against LSU, but win it pretty convincingly, even without Tua at quarterback. Um. So I wouldn't I wouldn't underestimate a Bama okay. without Tua. Now, do I think now getting into a playoff scenario where you've got to face Justin Fields and Trevor Lawrence and you know these other teams, you know, maybe I'm thinking, yeah, they really need Tua because that's playoff time. But in a regular season game like this, and you look at LSU having to play Florida at home at night, then the the near miss against Auburn, and now you know. Two weeks, it's Tuscaloosa and the struggles they've had and how bad they want to win. Oh, we want to win so bad. And here's Nick Saban for the first time that he, you know, for one of the rare times in his coaching career, he's coming into a game a little shorthanded. He's coming into the game behind the eight ball a little bit, you know? So I don't know. I don't know about that one. But I, okay, I, I'm well, with let you. Me, Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, let me flip it then. Alabama beats LSU, wins the SEC, so we know Bama's in. Mm-hmm. Now LSU joins the crop of 11-1 and teams. So it's LSU, Penn State, Oregon, Oklahoma, all with one loss. We know Clemson, Ohio State are in with, with, excuse me, with uh, Alabama at that point. Now who's getting in? Penn State. Over LSU? Look at LSU's at a conference schedule. They, it also depends. Well, well, how is Texas going to win against finish? Texas? Well, that's true. Texas is now a three-loss team. So is Texas going to win out? Right. Now, let's say Texas wins out, gets to the Big 12 championship game, and gives Oklahoma a tussle again. Yeah, maybe that, that puts LSU up top. Who's but, Penn State's best out-of-conference win? Oh, Lord, it's somebody not good. Okay. So, I mean, I, if I'm the committee, i got to look at that, right? What did Penn State schedule out of conference? 
Big Ten likes to pound its chest on that, but they play nine conference games, right? Mm-hmm. Well, who do they play out of conference? Who do Penn State, do they challenge themselves out of conference? It's probably Pitt. Pitt's probably the best team they played out of conference. I think they beat them, too, 56 to something. Yeah, I mean, it's but Pitt's, respectable. Yeah, respectable, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I, you know, that, it, that's interesting. And, look, I'm, I'm not going to discount Oregon either because – and, look, you, you, it, when they used to have the BCS and the rankings, you know, sometimes it's like how you finish. Remember that Ohio State a couple of years ago lost their opener to Virginia Tech then ran the table and put it on Wisconsin in the Big Ten championship game got into the playoff as the four seed and then won the whole thing. So there is something to be said about taking an early loss and then running the table. Now, Oregon's going to have to be very impressive doing that, you know, with the Pac-12. And they have, and they have teams they have to play that they can be impressive against. But, um, you know, that, that's another thing to keep in mind is that Oregon's one loss is a six-point loss where you blew a 15-point lead on a neutral field to, yeah. a, to a top 15 team. Uh, to open the season, and then you've won every other game. So that, that's something to consider as well. Uh, absolutely. Uh, you mentioned the Ohio State uh, scenario, and they went on to win a national title after losing at home, if I'm not mistaken, to Virginia Tech. And if you look at the last few years, there have been teams that had a disappointing loss and still got in the playoff, which is what you would, which is what you tell yourself if you're Oklahoma this year, mm-hmm. right? Hey, we're not out of it. This has happened before. We have a, we, we've seen precedent where teams can lose a disappointing game to an unranked team and still get to the playoff. But this year, I think it's going to be a little crowded. I think it's going to be a little harder to do that. Um, and so I, I think Oklahoma's in a, in a lot of trouble. I think Penn State, Oregon, and whoever loses LSU-Alabama – that's my way too early projection on what the fight for number four is going to be in this college football playoff. We'll see. All right. We'll see. Should be good to track. Should be good to track. Uh, we got to track out of here. We are over time. Again, the, uh, kind of the bombshell that was dropped on us earlier today involving the NCAA felt like we had to address that before we got into the action. Good news is if you're still wanting more, Later on this week, we'll drop yet another preview of a busy and hopefully very entertaining weekend of college football action. So make sure you download that as well. And we're happy that we're now on everything, right, JC? We're on uh, uh, Google Play. We're on iTunes. We're on Spotify. We're on 24-7 Sports. What, what are we not on? We're on just about everywhere, right? Yeah, and uh, you got uh, iHeartRadio coming on. iHeartRadio, le- yes. Le- recently, Spotify, like you said, iTunes, Google Play, twenty four seven Sports. They got a page where you can find all our episodes uh, through a uh, podcasting platform called Megaphone. Uh, big fan of Megaphone so far because it's gotten us in more spots, and you know certainly you can uh, you can find us on Twitter. He's at Morgan on Air, and I'm at JC Sherbert, and we tweet out our episodes quite uh, frequently. We do, and if you folks want to be a part of uh, the podcast, maybe a part of the preview one, if you agree, disagree, have any thoughts on anything we said today, tweet us, and we'll make sure to address it on the uh, next podcast as well. Until then, he's JC. I'm Mike. We're out.